0: Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on JewishCoffeehouse.com, the show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca Frady, your host. Welcome back to the show. Today's intro will be short. This is a Jewish Coffeehouse podcast. And the first part of the episode of Bailu is interesting, but if it's not your speed because you don't want to hear about Ilanit, the choir again, and how I met this guest, then feel free to skip forward to the more intimate parts of the conversation. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Please reach out with your comments and feedback. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the show, Bailu Wertheimer from Muncie, our first Satmar guest on The Francisca Show, and a listener, it is such an honor, welcome. Thank you for having me, I'm really excited to do this. Let's start off with what made you reach out to me how did you find the show as a Satmar woman? It's not like I'm advertising in Mishpacha or me. Right. If you're allowing me, I'll call you out for stereotyping
1: me, but thank you anyway. <laughs> so I think I first heard of you just kind of like part of a conversation, like different sound bites were going around and different guests. I'm actually very into many different platforms and many different podcasts. I'm into politics. I'm into a lot of different things. It's not like it was something completely out of the ordinary for somebody to forward me an episode of of a podcast. So I definitely like heard you around. I can't necessarily pinpoint a specific show, uh, I, I let me just jump to the end of the story, then we could get back to the beginning. I was looking for the Yitzchai music, and I was trying to ask on different family groups and different friends groups if anyone knew it, knew about it, knew where I could get it. And after a lot of asking around, somebody had mentioned that there's a platform called I'm a Mother, and she could post there for me. I, I was not on the platform, so she did me that favor. And then she came back that I can reach out to the Francisca show and that you were in the choir or you were a daughter of the choir. I don't remember exactly what they answered, but that's basically what happened. I reached out to you. I was 99% sure that I would never hear back anything, but I figured it was, it was, I was really looking for it I was (laughs) very, you know, I was determined on my end. So I figured I'm, I'm doing it. And I sent you that email and the rest is history. You came forward, you are just so incredibly kind and, and willing to work on it. And I I, am touched. So then, right, I had to reach out to you. Because, you know, that's the type of person I am. I, I meet people. I need, to, I need to connect. I need to just have that personal, I'm a big personal relationship fan. I, I don't like digital. I don't like email. don't like text. So I, I just needed to, to be personal about it. And thank you for, you know, uploading the tracks and taking the effort and going that, you know, extra, extra mile. I know, you know, there's a lot of conversation. It wasn't just a simple, you know, here you go. It's digital. Here is a link. So, yeah, that's when we spoke, and I guess that's what triggered the idea, maybe, for us to have this conversation.
0: Yeah. Let's move back a little bit. Tell us what your I we went into your background, but give us a little bit of your religious and professional background.
1: Sure. So I grew up in Satmir. Well, my husband grew up in Satmir. We still are. My kids attend the, the school, and the did, and Hashem, we are very blessed and very happy And like I said in the beginning, thank you for stereotyping me. I'm very passionate about speaking about values, about truth. I believe that stereotypes exist for a reason because probably every stereotype is true for 80%. And yet I I wish people could, you know, just be, you know, start everyone on a blank slate. Like even if they say certain specifics about themselves and it might be very true for them, just let them, let them be, you know, I'll just, I'll tell you a funny story. I, I was at a networking event and I'll get into my professional background in a second. A networking event, woman to woman, very, it was supposed to be a very respectful place. And it was, it was a great, great event, made a lot of good connections there. But the second I walked in, people look at me and they're like, oh, you must be the Meshgir's wife. And I'm like, no, actually I'm the sponsor of tonight's event, you know? So just like when you meet people, just give them that permission to to get to know them, I guess. Anyway, so th- there's nothing like technically remarkable about me. I went 12th grade, you know, up, all, all through the 12th grade. I went to Saturn School in Muncie. I got married straight out of school. I always had a tremendous appreciation and connection to drama, stage, scripting. It grew with me as I grew older. I appreciated it on different levels. But as a girl, it was definitely the glitz and the glamour and I know I, I think in me it was that emotional connection and that emotional release that, you know, drama and stage and, and acting and singing gives you. I couldn't articulate it when I was younger. I just knew I wanted to act. But I was also very, very happy and still am in my community. So that was definitely on a personal level that wasn't going anywhere, right? No acting, no singing happening. We did school plays and, you know, there were some opportunities for song and dance, maybe a little bit of drama, but nothing beyond that. And I knew that being happy and respect in my community, I wasn't going to pursue it on a professional level. Coming out of school, I started teaching. I started off teaching ninth graders. I was just four years older than my students, but it was a fantastic experience. We learned a lot. We grew a lot. I, I feel that those core ideas, and again, I couldn't articulate it then, but what I really loved about drama, I was able to kind of bring into the classroom. So. I was always very dynamic and dramatic and a lot of storytelling, a lot of just sharing ideas and values. So with time, I started looking into other things that I could do professionally. I started taking professional grade um, courses in script writing. That's where it started out. I brought it back to my community. I still do some local high school scripting, things like that. But I definitely grew that professional part very much. Eventually founding the Slingshot Guys. There was a talent school in between, but that morphed into... The Slingshot Guys, which is a video commercial company right now running day-to-day without me because that was another stop in the journey, but definitely a very professional high-end commercial company that does advertising, guides clients through different social media platforms, develops a social media strategy, sometimes bringing in television strategy as well. So that's it. The whole contradiction package right there.
0: <laughs> Going back a little bit, you mentioned how... There were no outlets for you as a religious young girl in drama, which is what you wanted to do, which is exactly the experience of any orthodox girl across the spectrum, I would assume. It's not like they can go audition. You still have Shabbos. You still have Sneas. You still have all the issues that come with it. I think the dreams changed. Like For me, the pain was... Why doesn't my
1: school put on a professional production, like for the public, right? Because it was all just contained to school. And then when you're in a modern orthodox school, maybe the pain is Hollywood, which for me didn't even register on the radar at all, you know? So it depends on what you're exposed to. And then that pain is that next level of what you're not going to do for your values, right? So.
0: And why did you thank me for stereotyping you? I, I guess maybe I was being sarcastic a little. Okay,
1: <laughs> no, because okay. I appreciate you. But no, I, I was, I, I, I was wondering if it was genuine. Genuine. uh No, 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 a little bit, because I, I'm thanking you for bringing it up right in the beginning so I could clarify. And because it's it something that I, I love bringing out there. I can't always have that honest, like, thank you for stereotyping me. I wouldn't do that in a networking event. <laughs> you know, <laughs> casual conversation. I feel podcasting and things like that is where we could have that conversation, just be you know, upfront about it. And I do my stereotyping all the time from other Hasidic communities and from anyone out there. I'm sure I have assumptions about you that you could you could thank me for stereotyping you, you know, and, and it's it's true
0: across the board.
1: It's Republican Democrat. It's it's everything. So
0: And the Western world starting to accept that you're a lot of stereotype because if there's a threat, we need to trust our gut because if we just presume everyone to be blank slate and they're coming at us with guns and we're still oh, giving yeah. them the benefit <laughs> of the doubt it's time it's right. time to stereotype yeah. to protect yourself okay so when you reached out you said something about the music getting you through some rough patches which i found to right. be very vulnerable of you to share that with me would you mind going into that I'm not sure like, if everyone is, is in tune
1: with what we're talking about. It's kind of music. So maybe I should, from my perspective as a viewer and a, and a listener, share a drop and maybe you could fill in. I know there's a, a full episode, so people could go back to that on The Francisco Show and listen to Memories that.
0: Memories of the Ilani Choir.
1: Correct. So basically there was this choir, and you could go back and listen to the show, of young girls in Moscow who are going to this religious school that... Your mother, um, I remember, found it and and ran, right? And they came out to Muncie at one point. I remember, I didn't even know, like, how we got to go to the show. There was some kind of small ad, and I was so hungry, you know, for stage and music and performances. So I would comb the papers and, you know, try to find anything that, you know, that I could go to. So there was this little ad, and we just ended up going, and I was blown away. So the girls were, first of all, singing beautifully, and genuinely and the song selection was so touching very like straight from the heart and there was nothing about it that was about you know attention or flaunting their talent it was just extremely shearing it was really I think music as what it's supposed to be in stage for what it's supposed to be to really influence you know your listeners so basically I The girls were giving little speeches about their their journeys, and most of them were coming from non-religious backgrounds and growing through being in the school. We listened to those tracks. We we bought the CDs at the shows, and we listened to them, like, literally around the clock. You and your sisters. Correct, yes. So maybe I should say that. I'm the oldest of 13. We're seven sisters, so a lot of, yeah, sharing and, and good times. Yeah, and I think a lot of that longing to be to be on stage and to have that opportunity, I was able to kind of channel through, kind of live it through them. So we connected very deeply to the music and to the experiences and to the speeches that the girls had given. And we would literally just act it out over and over again. We would stage the Elanit choir anytime. Like by Shalashidis with our aunts, it was always be like a big party and we would sing the songs. And I think for me, it was a way of, on the one hand, almost living that experience through the choir, almost imagining myself on the stage with them. But on the other hand, I think kind of getting encouragement from that idea, from sacrificing for values where, like I said, I'm sure every one of those girls had opened doors to many other opportunities. They could have gone to schools where probably they could take their singing career or stage career a lot farther there were definitely, and after hearing that episode, I, I know that they were exposed to national competitions and festivals with other Russian schools. So definitely there was ideas and perspective and maybe dreams, you know, that they could they could go farther than what the choir was offering them. And to see people stand up for their values was tremendously encouraging. People who have the talent, have the stage, have the exposure, and I, I definitely went back to that multiple times. I, I don't think at that age I was able to articulate what I'm telling you now, but looking back, it was and and then just in general, the genuine sharing. I don't think you find much of that in America to be honest. It's a hard skill to be able to be talented and then still stay genuine stay I mean, definitely, there are multiple artists that I've taken that inspiration from, but it's a hard i'd say even even like in in speeches, like in teaching or inspirational speaking, I think there, it's hard to retain that humility and that genuine connection with your audience once you hit a certain level. So that was always something very encouraging, to go back to music that did that, that really shared the, the message and the core value and wasn't overwhelmed by the external, just like, look at me, look how great I am. So yeah, the rough patches are were that, that emotional struggle, like... I want so much. And sometimes you sacrifice for your values, for the life you want to live.
0: I'm still playing that game where I'm putting out music and I'm doing this thing. And then I'm like, am I doing this for myself? Am I I doing this for other people? Is there anything wrong for doing this for myself, even if other people benefit from it? So I'm very familiar (laughs) with this thought process. And and it
1: definitely goes into the work-life balance, you know, and different difficult choices that we make. But it's it's not only on the stage, you know, it's like, am I working like this, that I'm working or whatever I'm doing or that I'm going out and with friends? Like, I think that we live with a tremendous fear of being selfish. I, I happen to think that being selfish is a very positive thing. I think everyone, and let me go with this, but <laughs> I think everyone should be selfish. Like, you should be trying to make the best life for yourself. I think that we confuse selfishness with instant gratification or riding on other people, right? So at the core, yes, you you should be looking at your life and trying to make it the best life possible. But that needs to be, you know, with your family, with your loved ones, with your responsibilities, with
0: your values. You get what I'm saying? Am I being clear? I get what you're saying. And I want to go a little deeper and ask you what it's like being you in the community you live in, do you feel like you're living a life where you're sacrificing or are you living a life where you feel like you get to be selfish in the most positive meaning of that word? And the core of that word, which means I am constantly trying
1: to make the best life for myself financially, uh, relationship-wise, happiness-wise, I definitely I'm doing that. <laughs> I I think I don't know if it's a Western thing, if it's a an orthodox thing, if it's a trying to be a good person thing, where we, we're we like, we don't allow ourselves to admit that we're pursuing happiness. but But that's really all we're ever doing. But having said that, I'm a very strong values person. So I can't be happy doing something that is against my values. And I'm a very big learning person. So I'm always learning. What are my values? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Always, always learning. Always open to deeper explanations. Hasidus has a tremendous amount to offer in that regard. So I don't stick to Satmar specifically when I'm learning. I've done the broad spectrum from Breslov to Chabad to, you know, just really whatever talks to me. So yeah, I definitely feel very selfish <laughs> in that sense where. Sure. I I, I don't think I've ever been, I can't say ever, there's definitely been like emotional conflict where sometimes it's just so much easier to, to squash the feelings and just do what everyone else is doing and kind of take the short way that is, you know, the concept. of the short way that is a long way and the long way that is a short way. So, you know, there's basically sometimes there's a path that it's so short, it's one mile, but it's, it's so strewn with, with, thorns and rocks and mud so that's a short way but it's, it's a long way because still you're going to get through that and then heal what was broken on that path and then there's a long path that is really the short path so it's longer it's winding and has a lot of turn off points but it's 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 really it's the, it's the way that it's going to get you a lot faster and, and in a lot better shape at the end of the game to where you need to go to so i think maybe sometimes there there is that like you can't just can't fight so much anymore i can't ask of myself so much anymore. I can't clarify my value so much anymore. And I'm just going to do what everyone else is doing and not have to stand up for who I am or what I want to do. And it's as simple as when I quit teaching, just walking into the principal and saying, I just can't do this anymore. You know, it wasn't working for me. It wasn't working for my kid. It wasn't working for my family. And I knew that as a community, I got a lot of pressure to stay people were happy with my work and just that simple on that simple level right before we get into the more complex things at that simple level saying i would love to i can't and it does not work for me anymore that's a selfish thing to do if you think of it.
0: what wasn't working for you the schedule primarily
1: and a lot of burnout i was teaching five times a week i just i, I was reteaching the same subject matter over and over what ages um, I, I was ninth and tenth grade so a 14 15 year old maybe 15 16 around that age I was not in a, in a, I had four little kids by the time I completely left teaching. I scaled back slowly, but then at four little kids, I was growing at that point, my talent business, which eventually became the Slingshot Guys. But just just wasn't working. I don't think people appreciate what teaching is. I mean, it's show up, rain or snow, sick kid, no sick kid. If I wake up, I know I'd wake up six o'clock in the morning, kid has fever, you gotta find a place to put the kid. It's not, you know, you, you just have to show up. Sometimes I was able to get that, substitute to step in, but it's it's a tremendously devoted and dedicated field. And I just couldn't do that anymore.
0: When you reached out to me, you said something like, I wasn't expecting a response. I feel like I'm being rejected by all the different external things in my life. And this was something that wasn't being rejected. Can you go into that and tell us what you're referring to? Yeah. So I, I missed a word there, so I just want to rephrase.
1: Basically, on, I, 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 was, I was so emotional when you messaged me that the tracks were up and available. I was going to cry, you know, and maybe I did. I have been going through a lot of rejections. I have a daughter, she's two and a half years old. She was born with multiple challenges. She went through open heart surgery at six months of age, and she has Down syndrome. So... There's just a lot of challenge and a lot of, if you want to talk about stereotyping and misconceptions, and I think it's it's on three levels maybe that, you know, that rejection piece, it's on the one-on-one level where people are just going to meet her in the street and be like, oh, you know, and in many different ways, some are just ignoring, some are boxing her in into some kind of angel God's child oh you're gonna bring Mashiach or whatever like okay I mean I remember she was maybe six days old and somebody was like going to her carriage and like pushing her baby into my Malki's carriage like kind of I don't know her holiness should rub off on the other baby I wasn't sure what that was all about so that's like one level like that one-on-one interaction where I'm like just accept her. She's a child. She's a baby. That's all we want. Treat her like any other, whatever. Now she's two and a half, but whatever age she is. Then there's on a, I would say, structural level, I don't know what to call it, but where mainstreaming is still such a huge challenge, even in, in, in preschool, like I'm friends with mothers. And I guess the rejection wasn't only on my own experiences, but like what I'm gearing up for and what I'm hearing is out there trying to get their kids into mainstream schools on a, uh, I would say, on a developmental appropriate level, where the child is reaching all the milestones and having all the skills that any other child of that age has. And yet they take one look and say, Down syndrome, we don't accept you, which is devastating to hear that. I, I mean, I think I came in with an expectation that we're a lot more ahead than I'm seeing that we are. So that's another level of rejection where it's an official rejection from an institution or or a group or whatever it is just by hearing the words Down syndrome. And then there's the government level. So just applying for different therapies or different services or even items that technically in the insurance booklets are covered and they should be covered. And then just having to fight so hard. When we live in New York and we pay so much taxes and there's so much funding officially put away for this population. And then why is it so hard when it gets down to it to cover what the child needs to get covered? So it's just been two and a half years of talking myself blue in the face to the point of no oxygen. Baruch Hashem, a lot of breakthroughs, a lot of wonderful people coming forward and helping. And yes, helping us get what we need and being accepting. Her babysitter was amazing. A lot of different workers that we've had with her were incredibly inclusive and our family, for sure, hands down, accepting her, loving her. Somehow the negativity just always has that much more power. So it's just to reach out to a stranger and ask for something just because it's, you know, it's something that's meaningful to me that I've been looking for. And to get a response of yes, you know, well, you know, I'm and a lot of the rejection, it isn't even about the final result. It's not even about, do we get the service or do we get it covered? It's about the attitude of like, no, 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 we don't do that. It's not, co-. you know what I'm saying? Like, I've been on, on the phone with a, with insurance, wiped the floor with me for even daring to ask. And, and in the end, we got it covered, you know, like she needed transportation to her different groups and the things that she was attending, which is a covered service non-medical transportation and what the rep did to me for daring to ask (laughs) you know so that the attitude it wipes you it wipes you out and going back to like that selfish piece so many times it would be so much easier for me to just take the easy way out to say you know what forget it she's disabled go whatever sit on my floor here's food but I'm not doing this anymore you know and to keep fighting so you see it's it's which one is selfish? I think the negative selfish would be, I just can't do this anymore. You can go to the regular, I don't know, whatever's out there that's completely easy for for me to give you. And anything that's hard, I'm not doing. Or I can really fight. And, you know, maybe that's selfish, but that is, it's a long way. But it's taking me where I want to get to with her. And that's the attitude that I, you know, I try to implement in all the different areas in my life. So yeah, that was that was like a breath of fresh air. <laughs> that to to, to get a, a response. Like and even in the beginning when we were like, oh, I'm not sure what it would evolve, it was just it was nice. You know, it was it was wanting to help. So I think that's like the key.
0: Okay, so number one, I wanna thank you because you pushed me. I wasn't just doing this for you. This is something that we wanted to do for a long time. It wasn't happening and you were the yeah. You were the needle that pushed or the, the straw that broke the camel's back. But back to your story, how many other kids do you have? So uh, I'm going to drag you down another
1: route here. That's so I had, yeah, I gave birth to four kids. Thank you, Hashem. Beautiful, healthy. I had another baby that did not make it and
0: then, and then make it through birth, and then Malki. So you mentioned you knew about Malki's condition before she was born. Yeah. Are you comfortable talking about that experience?
1: I'll say what I am comfortable saying in public, but I, I do want to very much talk about when you struggle privately. There Maliki is a very public challenge. And, you know, she's with me. She's out there. Her challenge is all over her face, on her fingers. Wherever you look at her, it's there. And then there is there's private challenges. So, yeah, I was expecting Malky, you know, going around happy. I remember my mother-in-law had made a, she had married off a month, literally four weeks before Malki was born. And I was just there, you know, and everyone was like, oh, so nanny, nice, So when is the baby due, you know, and yeah, smiling and just being part of everyone. It was excruciating, very difficult. It, it was a choice that I made, you know, I, and, and I knew why I was making it. And we don't always have pretty choices to make. It was like going around expecting a baby and everyone knowing the diagnosis, which I, not for me to do that. I I just, that
0: was not something I could do. Or putting up that front, our parents knew. When you said choices, you made me think about abortion or I don't know, abortion specifically or giving the baby up for adoption. Right, so that's
1: another level. So we went through a very excruciating nine months. It was nine months. I mean, probably six months that, you know, we were living with a diagnosis. In the beginning, we had gotten a, a terrible, terrible diagnosis of, uh, so Down syndrome is trisomy 21. And we originally had gotten a diagnosis of trisomy 18, which is considered non-compatible with life. However, I personally know three children with trisomy 18 who are alive, very compromised, but, but definitely alive so we, you know, I'm not going to get into the details, but we did have our Diane on our side, and, and he was guiding us very compassionately through our different options. I, I don't want to get into details, but we did receive different tests that, that are possible, more invasive, less invasive. And there's something called a FISH test, which is a blood test. There is amnio, but whatever it is, we we got a very, you know, conclusive diagnosis of Down syndrome. And at that point, abortion was off the table. There were still a lot of health challenges with her growth. And our doctor, basically, from the beginning, he was, it's actually a group. So there are there some doctors that were genuinely delightfully kind. But the doctor that I was seeing to begin with was just don't do any intervention. And that was like, once we knew it was Down syndrome, just let it go, you know, don't intervene. And that was like, She's not making it. For me, coming, you know, my previous pregnancy had been a stillbirth. So those words were devastating. And going back to choices, I remember like I I was like, Hashem, don't make me choose. Whatever. If you want to take this child, you want to do this to me again, that's in you. You want to bring her into this world, that's in you but I'm not choosing. If if I have a choice, to, don't, like, don't. Like, I, I couldn't see myself at a place where I have a choice to intervene and saying, no, you know, you have Down syndrome, you don't get to live. I think I, I had developed a very deep appreciation for for life and for raising a child, you know, having gone through that loss. So, Baruch Hashem, thank you, Hashem. He, he didn't make me Jews and she survived. She She kicked through it. And and we're very, very blessed to have her. For me, it was never a question giving her up. I knew if, if she's being born alive, she's mine. I fought for her. I I wanted to have her. She's, she's she's my child, you know. And I remember right after she was born, it was so beyond my thoughts to give her up. People would ask me like, oh, is she home? And, you know, and and I'd say like, Yes, um yeah, she didn't need to stay in the hospital. Like and I was thinking purely medical. I didn't even and they were like, Oh no, I am like I'm trying to ask if she's living at home, you know. So I know that for many people it is a choice, kind of. And I um I kind of wanna say like I've been around the black
0: enough to not judge, but I do judge. <laughs> I do. <laughs> do you have a community of women who have similar experiences that you're able to connect with within your community? Yes.
1: yes. So I'm very lucky. About two and a half years ago, one of my good friends, maybe more by now, maybe three years ago, her child is a little bit older than mine. And she founded a chat group, a text chat group for mothers of children with Down syndrome. It's, it is actually a combination of mothers and foster mothers. So it's a combination of both. And we have over 250 members at this point. And it's just a shout out to the mothers over there. I've made some of my best friends really most supportive champions and cheerleaders and and shoulders to cry on, you know, when, when you're wiped, when you're done, that could just give you that validation and no, you're not crazy. You're not imagining. You know, I remember after one after one insurance phone call, they were literally denying, like to the point where they were saying, well, when you read children on, you know, on because there's a list of things that are covered, and let's say it says, well, children are covered or something like that. And I said, well, what does it mean that children are covered and you're telling me that I can't get this covered? And they were like, oh, children doesn't mean children. Like literally to that level, denying in my face that this thing exists. And I call one of the mothers on the group, and I'm like, am I am I psychotic? Am I crazy? Am I imagining things? Don't I know English? Like, what is the matter? And to get the validation, no, no, you're normal. It's okay. We all go through, this is what it takes to raise a child with special needs. And okay, you know, okay, if other people have done this before me, I could do it too. So definitely have, has been a, a tremendous blessing to to have that group of women and even outside the group, Down syndrome is a is a magnet. You walk through the mall, you know, with your child and and people are just popping out of the woodwork. So oh, I have a brother, I have a sister, I have a child, and just like coming over and it's it's very special when um there is a connection there that is it's just at its core. Jewish, non Jewish doesn't matter. It's it's there's there's just something there that you if, if you get it, you get it. If you've lived it, you know it, you know. So yeah. I think that something that's compelling me to talk about my challenges is, is I wish somebody could have reached out to me when it was a challenge that wasn't you know, visible. I, I don't know how that could happen, but I do have a dream of having contact material in, in OBGYN offices for women who get a diagnosis. There's a lot online and now there's a new website that a mother launched where she's trying to do that, connecting Jewish Orthodox women who have received a diagnosis. It's called mirroredhearts.com, like mirror, mirror, the word, yeah, right, mirroredhearts.com, which I would de- definitely encourage people to go on. And I know one of her projects is is matching people to mentors and just connections that they could talk to. I think that had I had that in pregnancy, it would have been a total different, total different experience. So, yeah, that's like why. Why I'm pushed to, to, yes, talk about it. I, I happen to be quite a private person. But, yeah, I, I want people to know that it's having support for, for whatever
0: it is, is is huge. How many months was your stillbirth? It was full term in 36 weeks.
1: Wow. Yeah. I don't think it's even something that I could talk about. In public, you know i've I've had close people go through that, and we've talked it's It's a different language. I, I could talk Down syndrome, I could talk Down syndrome pregnancy. It's not something I could talk about. I've written a lot just for myself.
0: I don't know. do you feel like you've healed from that? was having no. another baby. <laughs> Not
1: not malkey because it, I mean I'm not. I'm hoping I'm hopeful that you know a healthy pregnancy and a healthy child could definitely I think that there is a kind of trust that we have in life that it's steady that it's dependable that it's always going to be here and that only old people die and when you face death literal like unexpectedly and where you weren't expected to meet death you know. It shakes you in a place that is very foundational and you almost need to like give birth to yourself again, <laughs> to to yourself, to trust life again, to trust that life. I don't know if you could trust life again. It's more like to replace where that easy trust that life is life and it's always going to be around and mm-hmm. that pregnancy results in babies that are held and loved and raised so to reframe i guess i to to fill up that what was broken with something new i think that new thing is vulnerability and embracing that and not needing the trust not needing the thing that life is forever and that that the joy is always that what we try to build is is what we got and and something else takes its place, which I'm still trying to figure out what that thing is, very much along the lines of vulnerability to appreciate that love is so special because it's so easy to lose it. When people just ask me, how many kids do you have? It's always just like, I, I like wave to my baby and I know you're around, but I'm not going to make this uncomfortable. <laughs> I just say five, but when it's a deeper conversation, I it's something that was born. You know, it's it, it's alive. It's a life. It might have been only for myself. Most children, you share them. You share them with their teachers. Eventually, with their spouses. You just, the, the, you know, it, it's shared. You don't have exclusive rights to loving your child, but with a stillbirth it's it's all for yourself i don't even think a spouse could could share that a husband could it's those those months are yours you know it's he could be there for you but he does not carry the child
0: yeah it's not a question i normally would feel comfortable asking yeah, <laughs> yeah. i'm saying
1: i'm saying what i'm comfortable saying a I think it's something that I want out there. Like people should know that, A, they're not alone. First of all, there are organizations to reach out to. There's a incredible organization called Knafayim that is tremendous, tremendously supportive and going through something like that. There's an organization, E-Time, that is also has a separate division. You know, there's something else called Hug in a Box that was lately launched also to support. And to also know that, you know, if you walk into a room with twenty women, probably five women have been there, late stage, loss, and to, I guess, validate yourself because it's such a lonely. It's a very lonely loss, you know. It it's was not also like, a public loss. It wasn't because I, I no was one... working from home. I mean, it was public in terms of family. But even within that, there is no shiva. There is no official. There's no funeral, right? There is no. I mean, there's. There's definitely.
0: There was a, a belly, and then re- there's no baby. I guess you
1: need to appreciate the Hasidic world for this, so
0: <laughs> you can um, conceal pregnancies until the very.
1: No, it's definitely there, but it's not a. It's not a conversation. I mean, between sisters, friends, sure, but it's not like. It's not like in the secular world, for sure not, where it's just this, like even a baby shower isn't really not, it's just very private. It's, it's special. It's yours until, you know, you're, you're pushing the baby in the carriage. No, not that it's verboten, you know, it's not forbidden. It's just a very private society. It's a very, what's yours is yours. And especially for me, I'm a very private person. So yeah, and I was working from home at that point, so there was no work environment. I wasn't going. I, thank you, Hashem. I always say, like, had I been teaching at that point, I do not know how I would have gone back, you know, with big teenagers in the classroom. So that's something I'm very grateful for. But it was very, very lonely. I'm saying, even even in societies where it's more open and it's more of a conversation, and it's like literally the baby's in the room before it's even born, I um, it's still still, it's it's the loss is, is yours. Nobody has lost this child but you. You know, when the child is born and people have loved the child or whoever it is, there are other people mourning with you. They also miss the person that isn't anymore. Nobody misses your unborn child. They could be sad for you, but only a mother knows her child like that before the child is born. Like, they have personalities they have they have an identity they have patterns that are uniquely theirs every child is is a world so when I say it's a lonely loss, it's not because you have to return the crib it's only you have lost that's it maybe maybe there are some husbands who who also feel i mean I definitely who feel they have their own loss but it's 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 just very very lonely so I think that's why I'm putting it
0: out there, maybe to make it a drop less, a drop less lonely. Thank you. I have two more questions for you. One, and it's sort of going back to our theme of stereotyping. From my cultural education, Satmar Hasidus doesn't recognize the state of Israel. So I'm just wondering if you have any information that you could share with us to say what what it's like being in your community with the war happening and right so i am um,
1: gonna try to be extremely politically concise correct. about this no i don't know what you're gonna say you're right no that's 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 the fun part of this i'll i'll, I'll say something strong so there's a person i admire deeply by the name of rakethet i believe his first name is Aaron. brilliant brilliant person deeply zionistic and he tells his students that you can only be a zionist religious zionist if you've read and learned the satme rebbe's books and thoughts and sfudim right which is what i call them the point is that i am very deeply uncomfortable to go into it when it's it literally it's not a book it's volumes of information that you need to understand to appreciate what Satmar's ideology is. That being said, I think that the most concise way to say it is that Satmar's opposition to a, a exclusively Jewish government governing the land of Israel is against the, I uh, call Talmudic and halachic tradition. It's very, very much rooted in halucha as we live it, okay? Nothing political, nothing to do with, yes, is there a Palestine? Is there not a Palestine? Do the Arabs have property rights? Do they not? Half people have history, nothing, zero to do with that, okay? So all the politics aside, it's, it's rooted in halucha down to that. So people who who live it, who breathe it who study it, study it. And they, and they learn from their rebbe's and they learn from whoever they want to
0: learn from. And they... Okay, let me just stop you. Like yeah. Shlomo Melach, he was, and that was really the height point of the Jewish nation. Like that's when we were right. at our best. And then number two is halacha evolves. As circumstances change, as history changes, halacha evolves as well. So, like, that's where I was gonna, I was gonna say.
1: So, okay. I don't think that a podcast or any anything under, I'd say, five hours, more but give us more. Um, give us so that's the point that we need to, to know. The point I, I don't want to, because what I really want to say is, like Rabbi Rakhafet says, you gotta learn it. You, you can't. It's like, it's like. So, you what what's tell your me, personal? My personal feeling is that it pains me that, first of all, loss of life is, is horrific, tragic. Terror is terrible. It's barbaric. It's animalistic. Nobody should be killing anyone else. Okay, We should be having conversations and we should be respecting everyone's right to live as a human being. My personal opinion is that people who cross the line of being human beings and cross into barbarians deserve the death sentence that's that's really my 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 belief that's horrific beyond that i would really say it's rooted in the understanding of what halakha is definitely different circumstances i the way i look at it it's not halucha that changes it is Mitzis. What do we call mitzius? not reality. That's too too deep. But, you know, I'll, I'll give you a simple example. Like, sourced in the Gamuda, right? Sourced in the Talmud, a baby born at seven months. And I might be getting this wrong. Maybe seven, maybe eight. But there's a cutoff point that where a baby cannot survive. And therefore, you're not allowed to be Machal Shabbos to save the the baby. Because there's no chance of survival now. Obviously, that is not true today. We've had every single, I mean, anything over... I've heard stories, babies born at 25 weeks. So definitely there are realities on the ground that change, at which point the reasoning behind the halofah has changed and therefore the halofa has changed. But it's not the sources. So I really, like, I don't think that we could, I don't want to get into it because even what you said, Shlomo Hamelah this, that, it's, I don't even want to address it without having, first of all, I'm not the authority, right? I've learned what I've learned. I'm comfortable with what I believe in. Uh, what I could say is that I, I genuinely encourage people to learn, right? Go out there, learn. There there are websites. I don't want to make any recommendations, but you search South as Zionists and find your source material, right? Think,
0: so my naive question is, like, what's you the alternative? Hear from what's going on? What's in the alternative? My the church? Palestinians are ruling us and killing no, us? No, no, like, no. So um, right, What's our so other option at this point? Yeah, the only so, way I'll, to have peace and live in peace in Israel is right. to have guns and borders and police and jails because the alternative nope. is us okay. in a grave. Um, so I'll, I'll tell you, and I know I'm
1: going to sound like you can, you can wipe the ground with me. I'll tell you why I let you. I don't want to play sports with my values. You know what I mean? Like if you would challenge me to a soccer game and you say, "We'll write the truth on the ball and then we'll play soccer. And whoever wins, the truth is on their side. No, I'm sorry. We'll write a statement, right? We'll write whatever, and then you play with it. And then whoever wins the game, the truth is on their side. It's obviously like
0: okay. Let snob- me rephrase. When no, no, when no. no. Let me Jewish let me tell people. you.
1: Okay. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> let me let me finish. Podcasting conversations is a sport. It's, I like it for. I mean, it's genuine. Everything I shared is genuine, but it's. What is it? It's sound bites. You can throw, and I'm going to be quiet. You can throw every challenge in my face. I'm not going to respond because all I can really answer is that people need to genuinely want to understand and sit down. And I've invested a lot of time learning the other approach. I know all the questions you're going to
0: ask me, okay? What's the question I'm going to ask you? I'm going to ask you this. No, this. How are we going to survive? What's gonna no, happen? No, no. What's- when a Jewish soldier dies, do you feel like they died to protect you? Do you feel like they did something for you, or do you feel like it's completely unrelated to you because Hashem runs the world? And no, not, it's not according to your Allah. Neither. I feel. I
1: feel. First of all, devastated for the loss of life and of itself.
0: Okay, that I, feel- I get. But Crushed we also feel devastated Crushed by Nigerians and Christians being killed. Also, but it doesn't affect no, you personally. Like Jews are affected.
1: Sorry, by- no, I'm, that's not politically correct. But I, I do feel closer to my nation, and definitely if somebody who has sacrificed for the same values, I sacrifice in terms of you know Shabbos, Kashrus. If they're you know, I, I definitely feel closer to them than I feel with somebody that I don't share values with, or or even just less. Right. Definitely. There's a closeness and a connection and and a a life that I care about genuinely. I also feel as growing up in Satman deeply valuing the Rebus approach, I feel very sad that that to me is a almost a wasted war. And let me just finish to finish my thought, like, because I know that it's going to go, oh, but what should we have done, you know? So when I say these things, it's like saying I'm sad when someone dies of cancer. Cancer is terrible. I wish cancer had never, you know, entered this world. Do I have a cure for cancer? I don't. Do I wish somebody could find a cure for cancer? Of course I do, right? So this is where I am. I'm not the genius that understands the politics. I, have, I actually have a book that's... that's I'm scheduled to arrive in January about the history of the state of Israel and the politics around it. But I'm not the genius that is
0: going to find the people so who are who are diagnosed with cancer in your community, in our communities. What do they right. do? They go to the hospital and they take treatments. Right. They're buying right. into whatever is available. Right. They're not right. saying. Right. Oh, Hashem decided this for me. So that's it. I'm just going to no, surrender. So, so and not do anything about it. Right. You don't know. I don't know what
1: to tell you. It's like to me it's like i I, i'm i'm getting the same feelings as i got when like i said just don't make me choose right like do i do i intervene to save a potentially very sick child and you know pregnancy and bring the child into the world for for suffering and what we you know what we were dealing with then was a a lot worse than, than the reality turned out to be right and then or Do we go for, let's say, if abortion is an option, or do we just go for doing nothing and which the doctor is telling me the child is going to die? And the halacha says, I'm allowed to, I don't have to intervene. So sometimes there are just no choice. There are no good choices. Now, I want to throw something very, very maybe fresh idea out there that because, and I think that's going to give you an appreciation for what it means that Satmar's opposition to a exclusively Jewish government in the state of Israel is a halukha problem, right? It's based on halucha, nothing to do with politics and nothing to do with the changing realities or politics on the state of Israel. So I'll tell you two ideas. Number one, even if the entire state of Israel had been in a completely peaceful place, right, with no military opposition, meaning there are still, you know, people, um, nations that oppose it because that's one of the foundational Problems is that it's opposed by the nations of the world. Okay, so no, there's still that political opposition, but there's no military opposition. There's no wars. Right? It's just a completely successful, peaceful country. Satmar would still have an issue with that. Okay, that's one idea to maybe try to absorb how much it's rooted in halacha. Period. Right? Nothing to do with politics, and nothing to do with terror, and nothing to do with wars. Okay. On the other hand, on the flip side, if the government does. The exact same thing. Right. And yet 51 percent of the government is not exclusively in Jewish, meaning to say that there's a 51 percent of voting happening within the government, which is not Jewish per se. So it ceases to be a majority of, you know, it's 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 easy to be an exclusively Jewish country. Right. As a majority then I believe, and again, I'm not the authority, but I believe that Satmar would be fine with it. Satmar is fine with a Western democracy based on Judeo-Christian values in the Middle East. We love that. <laughs> it's it's That's what I'm saying. It has to be learned to realize how far this is from a political conversation. And by the way, just another interesting tidbit that the Satmar Rebbe himself would call out anti-Zionism outside of the gemuda conversation right outside of the halucha conversation he
0: called it anti-semitism because that's really what it is right but what about shlomo melech um, yeah. you said he didn't want to go into it
1: no i could go on i mean i don't even understand why it's a question because the problem in Satmar is that we were exiled that's the that's whole problem
0: so because of after
1: somehow. Because we? oh i'm sorry i didn't realize like we're really going back to the basics the basic ideology of Satmar is that because we were exiled, we have to wait for God to bring us back. That's it. Okay. And being that this was a military conquest for all the nations in the world to wholeheartedly let us live, which is why, by the way, there isn't a problem with having autonomous villages in the United States. You know, we have New Square, we have um, KJ, which is Curious Joel, which is the Satmar village, or many Independent villages. There's no problem with that. Your own security, your own mayor, your own public school system. Right? It's the idea of having rebelled against the nations that is the problem. And so, military force becomes problematic to me, even though I, I well, the
0: state deeply, was given sort of you know,
1: after oh, the Holocaust. What a, so, so that's why I said, like, was it? Was it not? Was it forced? Were, was there? Was there? a lot of debate and, and what and this then is, it, is the
0: process of Hashem giving us back like so it, it doesn't right. I don't think it's going to happen in one day no I don't either so this I don't well, either. according to a lot of people <laughs> this is part of the process they're yeah, yeah, not living
1: I, I know like I, you're not surprising <laughs> I believe that people should should learn I really on, on both sides I think some people should understand where the other people are coming from and and, and I want none of this to be like a political. No politician
0: has a right to. You know, in the movies, I don't know if you ever watched yeah. a movie and that's me stereotyping again. But let's say, you know, when execution style you have like it's a crime political show or whatever. And the messenger, the hired killer is there at the end. And he says, it's not personal. And then he shoots the person. Right. That's that's essentially what you're saying. It's not political, except it is political. It's all political. Maybe to you it's not political, but it's right. political no. to everybody else. That's literally That's so their, saying,
1: That's their life. Whoever, whoever tries to prop themselves up on Satmar to to defend their own anti-Semitic agendas or or any or I don't know.
0: It's it's just I, I believe it's no one's paying of, enough attention to really study it, although they say, Oh, some of the Jews don't even oh, believe in their but own. But that's state. What great. That, let me roll with that headline.
1: Right. So that's exactly what I'm saying. That I don't want to have the conversation so that other people could go and find sound bites that I said and use it for their agenda. Like if you're genuinely curious, yes, I, but, I do believe. But they're that. doing that already without this conversation. I know. I know. By the way, they're doing that with they're doing that with our schools. They're doing that with me being a religious woman separated with a mechitza. They're doing that with the fact that I don't sing in public. They're, they're, they're doing that with everything. Now, you and I, we feel it may be the most right now on this question, but the sound bites are, are with everything. So it's not, it's not unique. It's, 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 it's harping on orthodox, ultra-orthodox Hasidic
0: people. That's, that's all it is. And finding whichever soundbite you can. So I want to end with this, something a little lighter. Yeah. When, sure. When I walk into Evergreen and in Muncie and I, it's very Hasidish, like the majority is Hasidish. I feel like an outsider. I'm just always curious what you think of Orthodox people who are, who are not Hasidish. And, and I get the parallel of when you're in an airport, anyone who's half Jewish, you already feel connected to them. So I, <laughs> I, you, there's that automatic connection, but when you're, Around your people who look like you hypothetically, what are your feelings toward the outsiders you're you're saying me as as an yeah, individual person, yeah, oh, personally, like what are you thinking if I bumped into you and you didn't know who I was and we were I, you know at the fruit section, no, you're not going to get a very juicy
1: candidate here because I'm very um I was raised very uh, maybe say broadly. my grandmother actually had a kindergarten that was. English speaking with a majority, uh, what should I call it, Israeli, a big chunk of, of Israeli immigrants who sent there. So I grew up up to like the age of five that I went to that kindergarten and none of my friends were everyone, basically. And, I, and then even when I started regular school that, you know, the kindergarten went on and my family in general is extremely accepting and, and broad. So that wasn't a big deal to me ever. Also, I grew up in Muncie was very different. On my block, we played with, you know, there were all kinds of people. There was a secular Jewish boy that played with us. There were bali that lived there and and were raising their children there. All kinds of schools. So Muncie today is different. So I'm not going to be able to give you a very juicy answer. I would just like not think of you much at all. To be honest, I would pick my tomatoes. I'm more culture-shocked by the experience than you are. I um, We actually took a family trip, took my kids down to Tennessee in the summer, and we did a couple of the states there. And we had that experience in reverse, where we were just densely we curious about everything we saw. And we bumped into many, I guess, Amish people, sorry, I'm going to sound maybe very silly here, but deeply religious Christian groups. And they wouldn't talk to me. I tried. <laughs> I met a cute teenage girl. And I was like, we were standing in line for something. And I was like, where are you? And who are you? And where are you from? And what are your beliefs? And she completely ignored me. Uh, maybe maybe she didn't understand English. I don't think so. But I think that's very natural just to have that that intense curiosity. And my husband was schmoozing up every every Southern person really trying to learn. Of every place we stopped, it was like a conversation.
0: So definitely, it is because I, you're very exclusive. You know, if you go to YU or Stern, you blend in, or Turo, you blend in with people from all over. But the, yeah, you're, I mean, you're I, never going to go to a school where I would go to school. So probably. I don't have access to someone like you. So I'm so thrilled you listen to my show and that we got to talk. That's that's um, where I'm my thrilled. awe comes from because I I, right. I I get to ask you my stupid silly questions. <laughs> no, no, I love this. I could really
1: say that the the biggest blessing in my life—I mean, one of—is being comfortable being challenged, and a lot of conclusions I came to came from bumping into people who really challenged me. You know, I I've come home from events and told my husband I I really need to think about this. This it it threw me. It, it really it really rattled me a little. I I need to revisit this conversation. Let's this, this topic. I need to clarify. Um, you know what I believe, so I need to learn. I can't parrot because I—it's uh, too easy to throw me off. Like this, you know, to me, it's a major blessing to have people who are, who are, curious enough and bold enough, or or maybe they just don't value me enough to be scared of me. But I would say for most normal people, to to be bold enough to say, hey, you know, what is this? What what do you believe in? And and to give a chance to clarify. Thank you so much, Bailu. This was so great. It was great. I I really
0: had a nice time. So great speaking to you. We'll be in touch. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Be well. Thank you for listening until the end. Please reach out with comments and feedback. I enjoy hearing from you and see you next time.